Brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. That's been a long time, and I'm glad to be back with you all after uh, being a few weeks away now. So, again, I'm thankful to be back. Jonah chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 1, and I'll read down to uh, verse 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know, know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for bringing us back to your house to close out the Lord's day. We pray that this study in your word will Teach us much more about yourself and help us to grow closer in our communion with you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things I imagine that my uh, parents struggled with as we were growing up as kids was whenever we would have to uh, be doing something, we were told to do something, we would often ask the common question that kids ask is why? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing the other thing? And one of the things that they would do, that she would say, is don't play 20 questions with me. Do as I tell you. Now, 
as we come to this passage today, we get something very similar to that as well, of the Lord of Jonah running away because he was told to do something and the Lord and he obviously by the Lord and he did not, of course, do that. The section of verses that we'll be primarily focusing on, though, is not so much the the whole section that I just read. It'll be largely uh, setting that for for context. We'll be focusing mostly on verses one to six. But one of the things that comes out of this is the fact that when we are told to do something by the Lord, it's oftentimes can be and is very a very difficult thing to do. Uh, not only is it a very difficult thing to do, that's most often because it's whenever we don't want to do it, like I did whenever my mom would give me a chore or something to do. We need to realize that even when times are difficult or when he asks us to do difficult things, that we are doing so, that when we fail to do them, that we're cutting against God's will for our lives and whatever else that may accompany with that. Now, there are several notes here that we could say as far as context goes regarding the book of Jonah. He is a a contemporary of several of the prophets of, say, Hosea and Amos around the 8th century in the northern tribe of Israel. As many of you may know, uh, the northern tribe was one who was exceedingly wicked as compared to the uh, southern tribe. Uh, It's usually said the southern tribe had at least eight good kings since the end of David's reign and, and the split of the kingdom from Solomon to his descendants, whereas in the northern tribe there were no good kings. This comes at a time that, especially in the 8th century, where the uh, Assyrian Empire had come up to rise and had made Israel essentially a vassal state. In other words, the king of Israel would have to pay something of a tithe, as it were, in order to uh, remain on good terms with the king of Assyria. And particularly where this book is coming uh, to place right before the prophecy of, of the prophet Isaiah comes right before the general exile of the people. So when uh, Jonah is being sent here, he's being sent to a people that are about to take them into exile for, you know, umpteen years. In fact, uh, one of the things that we know about the modern state of Israel, for example, this is how severe the exile was for the northern tribe, that whenever you talk to a modern Jew, you're not talking to somebody who is necessarily a descendant from the northern tribe, they're from the southern tribe, because during the exile of the northern tribe, they were so assimilated, either through marriage or religion, as it were, with the Assyrians, that when they did come back, they were not really, there was no real consequence, there was no real difference between them and the nations with which they had gone to be with. And so when they come back, of course, and they settle the land, they make up the nation state of Samaria. And because of the, the uh, crossover between the Jews and the uh, Assyrians, they were not seen as pure Jews. So there was, that was one of the reasons for a lot of angst in Jesus' day. And so when you consider that the severity of the uh, nation of Assyria, we can sort of need, we need to also consider a little bit of the nature of the Assyrian Empire as well just how brutal they were. In fact, whenever they would conquer a nation, they were known for their brutality and how they treated their prisoners, prisoners of war, and flailing their skin. In fact, whenever they would take a conquered king, they would 
ride, ride him back on the chariots and make him walk the whole way from whatever kingdom it was to uh, imprisonment in Assyria. So they were not exact, and they were known for their fearsomeness, their, their brutality as far as the prisoners of war are concerned. And it's to this very people that the prophet Jonah is being sent to. In fact, it's, he's being sent to a people that he's never been sent to before. Not only that, no prophet has been sent to before. He's being sent to the belly of the beast, to a nation that is known for their brutality, and a nation for whom they are about to be taken into exile from. So it's a difficult task indeed. And one of the things that we see in this text that Jonah does is he runs immediately from the Lord. And for that reason, I want to focus on that today and saying that running from the Lord's presence does not necessarily, does not ever really free you from Him. Running from the Lord's presence does not free you from Him. And so we'll see that in two ways. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, we do anything to flee Him. We do anything to flee Him. And then second of all, in verses 4 to 6, we'll see that we cannot flee Him. Now, considering verses 1 to 3, we'll read it again. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, there are a couple of things that we can note here in these opening verses. First of all, it's a word from the Lord. Uh, this is introducing us to a prophetic utterance. This is a, this is a prophecy that the Lord is giving to Jonah to, to, to do. He's saying, you know, go to Nineveh, go to that great city and witness against them. One of the differences, though, between the book of Jonah as it's being opened up here versus other prophetic writings is that whenever a word of the Lord is coming, it's usually coming by way of the prophet himself. You know, in Isaiah, for example, we see this time and time again, thus saith the Lord. This is one of those few instances in the Old Testament where that is not necessarily the case. In fact, it's told by the narrator. Now, the, the most significant part about this, though, is that it's a word from the Lord that he is obligated to do. He's obligated to proclaim it. You know, as preachers, uh, like Richard, he's obligated to proclaim the gospel week in and week out. The prophets were obligated to uh, prophesy to the nations, as it were, at least to the nation of Israel is concerned, so that they would know exactly what the will of the Lord is. But one of the curious things about this passage, as we see it in verse 1, is where he sent to. He sent, arise, go to Nineveh. He has an obligation as far as prophesying. He has an obligation related to teaching. And he has an obligation, as we see in verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. It's two imperatives here that is leaving you without doubt in the original text. It's leaving you without doubt that not only is he supposed to be prophesying, but he's also commanded, intended to go to the nation state, or the city state of Nineveh in the nation of the empire of Assyria. Now we mentioned something of the brutality of the uh, Assyrian empire, so it's not necessarily worth repeating. The only thing I will say uh, about it as it relates as it relates to Nineveh in the Syrian Empire, 
the city of Nineveh is called here a great city. It's called, or it's you know perhaps a large city. It's a significant city. It's a it's a well known city. It later does become the capital of the Assyrian Empire, but at least at this point it isn't. But it is still known as a significant city uh, in the Assyrian Empire. And if you actually look on a map in on in the back of your Bibles or on any world map for that matter. You'll actually see it in ancient Mesopotamia where uh, Nineveh, the ancient city of Nineveh, was situated. It's actually at the very center of the heartland of Assyria. It's centered at the heartland of the city of Assyria. And so, what the Lord is actually asking him to is actually asking Jonah to do is he's asking Jonah not only to go to Assyria, but I want you to go to the heart of Assyria. I want you to go to the greatest city of, of Assyria. I want you to go to the city that is known for its wickedness. I want you to go to the nation that is at the center, that has the center of wickedness, at least in the world today, that's known for their pagan worship. And the request, you might suspect, actually startled Jonah a great deal. Uh, very rarely in the Old Testament will you see a prophet go to anybody else outside of the people of Israel or to the king of Israel. But here he's being sent to a non-Israelite king. He's being sent to the king of Assyria. So not only is he being sent to uh, somebody other than uh, the people of Israel or the king of Israel, he's being sent to Assyria. He's being sent to the heart of Nineveh, where at the heart of Nineveh he's supposed to proclaim their wickedness. He's supposed to go in and tell them to repent. He's He's being told, you know, their, their wickedness, their, their evil doings, their brutality, all of these things have come up before me. He's being sent to the heart of a city of wickedness. And as a prophet, Jonah himself most likely even knew that Assyria was going to be the nation to take the northern tribe of Israel into captivity. So for one of the reasons that you might say he, he ends up leaving in case of fair... To leave is because he sees it as futile. He may also do it out of fear. The, the text, at least at this point, doesn't really say that. But nonetheless, he does. He goes down in verse 3 and it says, he, go, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He paid a fare to go down to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, a couple of things can be said here as well in verse 3. The fact that he went down to pay a fare. We titled this main point, as I said, uh, we will do anything to flee him. Um, whenever legal authorities, parental authorities, or anything like that gives you a demand or a directive or something like that to do, they generally will expect you to obey it. Well, they will generally expect you to obey it and not to ignore it and to, certainly not to flee from it. And yet that's exactly what we see Jonah here doing. He not only just tries to get away from the presence of the Lord, but he pays a hefty amount of money to get, be able to go do that. He pays, prophets didn't make a whole lot of money, so at least whatever he did have, he paid anything and everything that he could, so as if he might get away from the presence of the Lord. Those are two things that are, that are mentioned, that, that is mentioned here twice in this text, he 
went down to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. And again, at the end of the verse, away from the presence of the Lord. And that's, that's really one of the things that is, is really remarkable here about this text. He's, he's trying to get away from the Lord. It's as if Jonah is treating the Lord, he's treating Yahweh as one of those pagan gods who are confined to any one aspect or any two aspects, as it were, of, of creation. You know, the pagans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, all of them had their different gods for the sun, for the harvest, for the sea, for, for anything like that. They were sort of confined to that thing. And, and so far as you could get away from them for a time, you could, you, you really could, because they were always confined to that one place. In fact, at least how worship had been going in the ancient city, or the uh, ancient nation of Israel, worship had also fallen on the hard times to where they ultimately felt, some of them at least, that the ancient uh, God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, could be somehow confined to Jerusalem where the temple was, where he would come down to dwell among his people. And so at least perhaps even in Jonah's mind, even as a prophet, he felt that by getting away from Jerusalem, he may somehow be able to get away from the presence of the Lord. No doubt, as we considered a few weeks ago when, when we went through Psalm 23, we said something about Yahweh, his covenant name. He's got everything that he could ever want. He holds upholds the creation. He, he governs it by his righteous right hand. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There's never a time in which he doesn't need, uh, have any need. Like he, he never needs anything. And certainly, he is the God who's all-powerful, and he's also the God who is always present. The request for Jonah, no doubt, was very difficult, and it caused him to flee. And no doubt, while there are no uh, answers as to why he fled. There, there actually is in chapter 4, but at least at this point, the author leaves you in suspense as to uh, why he's leaving. But one of the things we can probably at least guess, anticipation of what we would see in uh, Jonah chapter 4, is that uh, he probably just did not want to do it. Maybe fear even overtook him. Has there ever been a time in your life in which the Lord has perhaps asked you to do something yourself that you did not want to do. Take, take spiritual conversations. This is, interestingly enough, one of the great difficulties of my life. It's having hard spiritual conversations. Perhaps with a believer that is struggling with a particular sin. can probably think of one and name it. Or perhaps an unbeliever struggling with... Uh, the doctrines of the faith and saying, you know, well, what about this or what about that or what about the other thing? Why is it for me to, like, I, I don't know why he would even require that. Why would the Lord require it? It just, it just seems too hard. No doubt that pales into comparison in some ways, at least, to Jonah being asked to go into the heartland of paganism. And yet at the same time, it, it holds true, doesn't it, that having such conversations or doing difficult things that the Lord requires of us like spiritual conversations, often creates for us cold feet, and we just we sort of back away and don't want to have them. And yet at the same time, it's one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity and growth is that we're able to have those. It's a sign, really, of Christian love, one for another, that we have those conversations so that people may grow in the nourishment of the faith. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, for example, 
Paul even tells us that that is one thing that is to be marked as far as Christian speech goes, is to, is to let our speech be seasoned with salt, uplifting one another in grace and truth. They're never easy, yet they're required. And especially in the case of unbelievers where they're perishing and going to hell, how much more would we have those conversations as well? Uh, in fact, one of the, the best one of the best conversations I've ever had is seeing unbelievers come to know the Lord. And there's a lot of process, there's a lot of working through questions, working through antagonistic questions. And one of the things we struggle with is, are they going to hate me at the end of it? No, they're, they're, they're angry at God, perhaps. I mean, Romans chapter 1 even teaches us that the Lord, uh, uh, that many people will suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so when they lash out, they're lashing out at the Lord. They're not lashing out at you. And yet, you know that it's a conversation that you need to have. With unbelievers or believers in particular struggling with sin. So we can't run from them. And yet we do anything to perhaps to do it. But we can't run from it. And so we know that we can't run from the Lord's presence and we do anything to flee Him. But we also need to realize here at least in verses 4 to 6 that we cannot flee Him. Look with me again at verses, at verses uh, 4 to 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the marvel, uh, mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. But they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, and had lain down and fallen, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Rise, call out to your God, perhaps... The God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We know that we cannot flee him because as we have just mentioned regarding the Lord's name, he governs all things, he sustains all things, and he, he upholds all things with his righteous right hand. He even controls the very seas. There's no sea God, as it were, in, in Israelite worship. There is the God, the Lord Yahweh, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he sends such a mighty storm that the way I was reading it in the commentaries and, and things like that, it almost compared to like uh, hurricane force winds as it were. It was a, it was a mighty storm. Uh, in fact, I remember a couple of years ago when uh, Hurricane Matthew came and, and crashed up against the North Carolina, uh, the, the North Carolina coast and how much devastation it left and how much there was recovery from it. And could you imagine a tiny ship, perhaps, that's just going across the Black Sea. Could you imagine a tiny ship being able to stand up to something like Hurricane Matthew? Probably not. Uh, not only is it not going to be able to do it, but as we even see, at least in this text, uh, the ship was threatening to break up. In fact, the, 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 the idea present here is, is less it was maybe not threatening to break up, but it actually was beginning to break up. Uh, such that it caused a great fear, it caused a great panic. That as the storm was raging, so were they like trying to cry out to their own gods as they were throwing out uh, cargo on the ship. That's something sailors tend to do. If they're ever in a situation where uh, the, the ship is in danger, their lives are in danger through a storm, they'll oftentimes throw over cargo to sort of lighten the load so that as water is coming in, it won't swamp the ship. 
But notice what they say that they do here in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And that's a contradistinction of what we'll see here with Jonah at the end of verse 5, where he's fast asleep. Instead of going down, as it were, to, uh, to, to do anything else, they fell on their knees to worship. Pagans falling down to worship. Now, of course, some, several commentators that I've read said that that's a natural response. It's like even in the midst of turmoil, atheists and pagans will themselves even fall down to worship. But it's the fact that they're not worshiping the one true God who controls all of these things. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, for example, says unbelievers will suppress the truth and unrighteousness that although they know God, they do not regard Him as God. And at least in this passage, though they know that they need to worship and they do fall on their knees to worship, they still do not recognize the true God as God. And yet, at the end of this passage, we see that they do end up acknowledging Him. Because they recognize something about Jonah's God that he's able to control the seas and all and the world and all that in the midst. And yet, at this point, or whatever, so they have not begun to recognize that. And that's a big distinction, at least here, between Jonah, or the sailors, the mariners, and the prophet Jonah. What does it say about him? But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, and he lay down and was fast asleep. Now, again, as, as I said earlier, there's no statement, at least at this point, as to why Jonah had gone had uh, fled Tarshish anyway. Perhaps fear was one of the motivating factors. And if it was fear, it would make sense, at least, as to why he would go down to lay, to lay in the bottom of the ship. He was probably exhausted. Um, if you yourself can never think of times or periods in your own life where a great deal of anxiety comes over you or a great deal of pressure comes over you and you, you become some, somewhat debilitated and you're like, man, I just need to, need to have a rest. I need to sleep. And then you don't wake up for you know, five, six, seven hours or however long it is. That's exactly what's going on here with Jonah. And yet, one of the things that you see here, at least in verse 6, is like, what are you doing? At least as far as the sailors are concerned, Jonah doesn't care. And yet Jonah, sleep is such that he's unable to even recognize or realize that the, word, that, uh, the Lord's actions that, uh, has, has come upon him. The Lord's wrath, as it were, his discipline, so to speak, has, has come upon him. It's an understandable question that the pagans began to ask Jonah, why are you asleep? Why don't you call on your God? Maybe he'll care about us. That's actually the thought structure here that we see in verse 6. Perhaps the God, they don't again recognize him as the God, or, or as the one true God, but perhaps this God, your God, will give a thought to us. Perhaps he'll care about us, that we will not indeed perish. When I was in, um, when, in my apologetics or systematic theology classes, one of the things we often talk about, or at least we have talked about, is to, uh, to what extent, as it were, that unbelievers know anything at all about God. At least in this context, they know something, they have some sense of 
uh, God's existence that it leads them to worship. That much is true. Not the God, but still a God. And one of the things that also becomes true for pagans, for atheists, or anything like that, maybe they're not asking necessarily out of sincerity. We don't know their hearts, per se. But whenever they ask questions like, when natural disasters or things like that happen, or famine or sickness, disease, where was your God? Where were you? Were you praying for this sort of situation? Was he even controlling this situation? Does he care about the situation? Now, of course, we know that he does. But it is a question that unbelievers time and time again raise up against Christians or raise up against the church, raise up against the God of the Bible. If he is real, doesn't care about us. That we will not perish. Of course, as believers, we know, of course, that he does. He does care a great deal about his people. He cares about them to such an extent that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for them, that in him we may have life and life eternal. That's what's almost remarkable here, at least what we see in verse 5, or at least verse 6. Does he have a thought of us that we may not perish? Again, we say, yes, he does. Because as we see in John 3.16, for example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that in him the world may not, what, perish, but have eternal life. The Lord's care for his people and also for the world is such that he sends his son, offers his son for the world that any who, any who come to him may indeed believe. And we must offer him that. Because as we mentioned earlier with difficult conversations with believers and unbelievers alike, those questions do come before us, don't they? And what do we offer them? We offer them the Lord Jesus. Now perhaps some of you do that, that very thing. Perhaps some of you do talk to siblings or relatives or any, or, uh, any sort of relative or friend like that. And you're constantly presenting Jesus. You're constantly presenting the Lord to them. And yet it seems that you're always up against a brick wall. Like you're stonewalled. Like they're, they're not going to listen to you. Or you, you know they're not going to listen to you. One thing I would say is this, that remember, as I said at the beginning, they're not rejecting you so much as they're rejecting the Lord. The second thing I would say is at least recognize that their lives are as much as in his hands, as yours are in his, even as Jonah's, even as he's being disobedient to the Lord is as well. So their lives are in his hand as much as yours is. And then the third thing that we know that in his due time and in his due way, we can pray and continue on with the, the knowledge that by his grace, he can and will soften hearts to bring all of his people to himself. And that's the difficulty, isn't it? When you have conversations time and time again with people and they do not seem to listen to you or care to listen to you, 
In fact, they might even downright revile you to your face and say, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to hear it. I, I just, I don't care. And yet what we'll see here at the end, towards, throughout the book of Genesis, the Ninevites do respond. And my point here is this, is that in the Lord's good time, in the Lord's good providence, he will respond to those prayers. My grandmother, for example, prayed tirelessly for days for one of my relatives to come to the faith. Now that relative never did, I don't believe. Again, I, I, I don't know. But it's the persistence. And that is what the Lord calls his prophets to. And that's exactly what Jonah is not doing. For whatever reason. But for you and for me, we can continue on and being persistent and learn from Jonah's mistakes and not flee from the Lord's presence. First of all, you're not going to be able to. The second thing that we can realize is that the Lord's word will not return unto him void. He changes hearts and changes minds. Growth never happens at the same pace as it does for each of us. It's always different. But you can commit your relative to him, even continue can commit your relatives or friends or anybody like that to the Lord, because in due time he will indeed bring the fruit by his grace. So fleeing him is not going to help. Ignoring him in prayer or communion is not going to help. Not doing Difficult things is not going to help it here. But praise be to God that He gives you the strength to do His will. Now, one of the things that we also know from this text is that it ends at chapter at verse six, or at least for this sermon, it ends on verse six with something of a cliffhanger. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But my point that I want to leave you here is this. It is difficult to give a relative, especially an unbelieving relative, to the Lord and let him work them out as he will. Your calling and your duty as well is to continue to offer Christ. And that's what Jonah was supposed to do in the first place. However that is best, your tracks or even praying for them. Let the Lord do the work of saving. But don't fail to talk about it. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the for Jonah in this passage today. May we more and more commit ourselves to you in this way. We ask all these things in Christ's name.